You're listening to Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. Today, we share an episode of The Science of Happiness, a podcast produced by our colleagues at the Greater Good Science Center. Host and UC Berkeley psychology professor Dacher Keltner talks with Michael Pollan, Berkeley journalism professor and author of many best-selling books, including his latest, This Is Your Mind on Plants. In this episode, they discuss what it was like for Pollan to give up Twitter, something that he found was becoming a somewhat unproductive compulsion. Next week, we'll be back with our final Berkeley Voices episode of the season. Okay, here is episode 95 of The Science of Happiness, How to Enjoy Life More with Michael Pollan. The Science of Happiness is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and greasy. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. First, Pros starts by asking about you as a person with their in-depth consultation. Next, Pros analyzes all your answers and determines what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of your custom routine. Our producer got a pre-shampoo scalp mask, shampoo, and conditioner with ingredients like plant collagen, maca root, and fermented rice water that she's excited to use on her hair. Pros is the healthy hair regime with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com science. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash science. What's a daily indulgence that you have a hard time giving up? Chocolate. Eating a spoon full of peanut butter. Coffee and cheese. An evening stroll with a sneaky beer and a coffee cup. I like to indulge in beautiful smells. Reading a book or reading an article. That indulgence would be video gaming. The dram of a really good single malt scotch. For me, it's no doubt coffee, and it's hard to imagine my life without it. I'm Dacher Keltner. Welcome to the Science of Happiness. Simple pleasures make life more joyful. They're comforting. So what happens when we give up something we love, even for a short time? Our guest today, Michael Pollan, did just that for our show. Michael's the Knight Professor of Science and Environmental Journalism here at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also the author, of course, of many best-selling books like The Omnivore's Dilemma and How to Change Your Mind. His latest book is called This Is Your Mind on Plants, and it explores the sometimes arbitrary ways in which we define what our culture considers a drug. Michael's here to share what happened to his mind when he gave up something that hundreds of millions of people use worldwide— We'll also look at the science behind how giving something up temporarily can help us appreciate it more when we resume it. But first of all, Michael, thank you for being on The Science of Happiness. Good to be here. I think it's kind of funny and ironic that I would be on a show about abstention <laughs> since, <laughs> since my recent history is all about indulgence <laughs> or the, trying things. And the pleasures of life. Yeah. So, Michael, you tried a practice for our show where you gave up something you enjoy for one week so you can appreciate it more in your life when you resume using it kind of like what people do in many different spiritual traditions like Lent and Ramadan. And I love this idea because it's counterintuitive and it has this richness to it. But before we talk about what you gave up for our show, I want to ask you about what you gave up and then wrote about in This Is Your Mind on Plants. Which Which is is caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Taking um, either as coffee or tea or soda. Yeah. 90% of us are involved with caffeine on a daily basis. That's quite extraordinary. That's our entire civilization <laughs> for all intents and purposes. This is the most widely used drug in the world, and you quit caffeine cold turkey. What compelled you to do that? The reason I did it was for just the reason you were describing at the top of the show, which is there's no way to understand the role of any substance in your life or practice in your life until you take a mm -hmm. break from it. Yeah. And I always intended to get back on. Indeed, that was part of the motive. I wanted to see how powerful the drug was because as you get inured to a drug, you get tolerant yeah. and you don't actually see its power. You know, initially, you you just don't know how – central caffeine is to the knitting together of the ego every morning. It's sort of phrase overnight, you know, we're in this dream world, we're unconscious, and there is this character that we need to put back together that gets us out of bed. And without caffeine, that just doesn't happen very well. So what was it like when you gave it up? So I just was not seeing clearly. I was in a fog. I didn't have headaches, which many people report. Uh, yeah. It's very common. Some people report flu-like symptoms. It can get really serious. And my habit was I was drinking one half-calf a day, by oh the way. I wasn't a big imbiber. But over time, it was the focus, the ability to think about one thing at a time. I felt like I had ADD. Yeah. And that all these peripheral thoughts, I could not stop. And as a writer, I mean, you know, that is the skill you need <laughs> is to block out everything and reduce the world to one word at a time. Yeah. Three months in and I had my first cup and it was transcendent. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was psychedelic. Really? I don't think – we have any idea. I mean, yeah. most of us use caffeine to maintain a baseline of yeah, clear exactly. consciousness and focus. But when you first have it and it, you do have none of it in your body and you're not tolerant in any way, it is powerful. I remember having this first cup on a Saturday morning and feeling this wave of euphoria and clarity. I mean, the world was like filmic. It was so <laughs> sharp. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the practice you did for the Greater Good Science Center based on work by Jordi Cuiba and Elizabeth Dunn, two of my favorite researchers in this field. And, you know, they had people give stuff up and then try it again. And you gave something up that you love, which is Twitter. And, well, love, I don't know. But, okay. But feel compelled to Part of your emotional with. life. You've got 560,000 followers. What is social media, what does engaging it mean to you or what does it give you? Well, I use social media kind of as a broadcast medium. I don't read comments that much because yeah. I find that really unhelpful <laughs> psychologically. <laughs> but I use different ones in different ways. Instagram I use very occasionally to promote something, but usually just, hey, look this cool thing I saw on my walk this morning. Yeah, There's tons of flowers. <laughs> and cacti and, and bread. plants and cats and all <laughs> sorts of stuff. Twitter I use because I feel like I've – helped construct a community around the two issues I've worked on most in the last 20 years, and that is food and farming on the one hand and psychedelics on the other. And they're both communities. And they, there's an overlap. There's a Venn diagram where they cross. So I'm constantly putting out interesting things I find in that space. And so I, I just sort of feel like I'm feeding this community information, and they're feeding me stuff too. And I found really cool stories that way. I see studies I might not see. I don't have an RSS feed anymore. I don't know if anybody does. And so I know that if I check Twitter and these accounts, I'll hear about any important new study or any important piece of writing on the subjects I care about. 
So I don't think that that's a destructive use of social media at all. But, you know, you get sucked into it. What did Twitter do to your identity or your landscape of feeling? My sense is that social media strengthens your sense of ego. And I don't mean strengthen in a good way, but I mean in terms of the ego builds walls. The ego is a defensive structure in large part. And we feel defensive because our ideas are being attacked or we're being attacked. And so you immediately go into this, you know, hunch where you're you're not open. You close. You close ranks with yourself. So I, I think it has precisely the opposite effect. And I think that's one of the problems, that it nourishes ego consciousness in the worst sense. I mean, egos are very important tools. They get a lot done. We all rely on our egos. But they also are what cuts us off from other people, from nature, by building these walls. And I feel those walls rise when I'm in an angry Twitter exchange. Yeah. What was that like for you to kind of have this way of relating to the world through Twitter and then give it up for a week? It was great. I just want to say for the eager beaver who goes to check my feed to see if I tweeted anything in this period, (laughs) I didn't go on Twitter. I have a tool on my desktop where if I see something I want to tweet to other people, Uh I can go to Amazon, press a link, and it will tweet. But I did not go on to Twitter. I didn't open up my Twitter feed. I didn't read any tweets. And so I continued to use it in a broadcast medium. So, you know, it wasn't a complete abstention, you know, (laughs) sue me. (laughs) So there are lots of things you could give up in your life. I considered others, too. (laughs) Like what do you consider? I considered sugar. Ah. And chocolate. How come? Why did I consider them? Yeah. Well, I don't have a big issue with sugar. I wasn't going to do anything hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't see the point. Wait, I thought this was like a contemplative spiritual practice where you really yeah, did but, serious uh, stuff. you know, it was a serious thing. But yeah. <laughs> sugar, we were going to be celebrating someone's birthday in the in the time period. So, And I felt like it would be antisocial to decline <laughs> cake for a greater good practice that I couldn't even explain to the birthday girl. So that was out. Twitter is something I've been struggling with. You know, it was a compulsion and not a very productive one. I mean, you're exposed to a lot of dark stuff when you go on Twitter and a lot of anger. There's a lot of things that happen there to make you pissed off. I know. It's funny. It's like, God, I've been, you know, my phone tells me every day how much screen time I have. And, you know, it was getting ridiculous, especially during the (laughs) last administration. (laughs) I don't remember, but it was several hours a day of screen time. And I don't remember the actual numbers, but my screen time went down dramatically dramatically during this 10-day period, which is great. And I think I'm going to continue. I mean, I I think I'll do what I need to do on Twitter, but not do it casually, not do it when I'm standing online, you know, at the grocery store. I used it to fill a certain kind of time. I know. But it's a certain kind of time that we used to daydream in. Ah, it's the best time. And we're not daydreaming. Waiting for the bus. Or, yeah. yeah. Or noticing your environment yeah, or looking at the people around you. It's such a stupid way to fill that time. Yeah. And so, you know, I learned something that will make it easier, I think, for me to uh, stop looking at the phone during those moments. Yeah. And that felt great. So I'm planning. I have to use Twitter because it's a tool for my work in many ways. Yeah. But I'm planning to cut way back and do more broadcasting and less reception of stuff. Well, and that's why I love this practice because, you know, a lot of the empirical data, you know, it's a story that's still in need of being told well. But the data show that a lot of use, mindless use of the new social media makes you lower in self-esteem and a little more depressed and doesn't boost happiness in significant ways. 
You know, when you get out into the discourse about the social media, which you gave up, it's just a reflex now for pundits and people to say, like, it's a drug, you know. Mm -hmm. And I bristle at that. Yeah. You know, you see somebody who's hooked on heroin, you're like, no, it's, it's a little different. Yeah, it is a little different. So how do you yeah. draw that analogy? You know, this I mean, we say this about food too that it's addictive and we use that word in kind of a sloppy way, I think, and that we should refine our use of it. Yeah. But, you know, it is a habit. And drugs are a habit too, and addiction is not just a property of chemistry. I mean, we know that. I mean, Less than 10% of people who use hard drugs become addicted. So it's possible to use them without getting addicted. Ditto social media. Some people can use them. So right. it's an adaptation, I think, to what's going on in your life. Right. Whether you're using social media in an addictive way or using drugs in an addictive way, it's serving some need, filling some hole. And, you know, I think all habits need to be reexamined from time to time. Yeah. I think it's very valuable to give them up and then see, take stock. It's like driving in a car. Unless you stop and get out, you really don't know much about that car. And so, but I I do think social media, you know, it could be different, but the way it's being used and the paths that it's gone down have tended to, yeah, make people feel bad. Yeah, It's rare you spend a half hour or an hour on social media and end up feeling good. But I also feel as a writer and as a person that, Contact with real things, contact with nature is so important to me and anything that mediates my relationship to nature, which is always mediated to some extent, yeah. I don't think is good for me. I agree. And, and I would say the same thing about social life, like, you know, real uh, social we, life. You know. Yeah. And, you know, we're all having the experience now of meeting people that we knew only on Zoom. <laughs> and it's really different. Some of them turn out to be taller than you thought or shorter, but but different in many ways. It just feels so much better. Yeah. First of all, you know, real eye contact. Yeah. That's that's a powerful thing. Oxytocin. Yeah. We've been missing something. We've been missing a lot. And I'm kind of giddy with its restoration right now. Yeah. So after a week, you could get back on Twitter and see other people's tweets. What was that like? You know, I haven't gotten back on. So I'm going to have to report into headquarters (laughs) on that one. What do you think it'll feel like compared to quitting coffee? I don't think I'll have the same sense of pleasure getting back on Twitter. (laughs) It's just a guess. I mean, and that has to do partly with Twitter and partly with the fact that getting back on caffeine was so fantastic. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's one of the big experiences of the last year. It was like that first cup. I don't think I'm going to feel that way about Twitter. I've just been happy the way it's been. (laughs) I'm sure I will, but I'm in no rush. So, But I do know in the case of coffee what that was like getting back on, and I'm sure this would have been true for chocolate too, that it has a savor, it has an intensity. You know, we're creatures designed to kind of, novelty gets very quickly turned into habit and the background and something we take for granted. And one of the beauties of giving something up is you once again have that sense of first sight or wonder or power of the experience that you've lost. And that's an argument for, you know, doing it as a rhythm of life that you get off these things because we forget what they're like. We forget what they give us. The more rare something is, the more special it is. So, I mean, I do think there's an enormous value in that. Well, Michael Pollan, congratulations on your new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. It was such a delight to read. And thanks for joining us on The Science of Happiness. Thank you, Dacker. Always a pleasure. Up next, what happens when university students are instructed to give up chocolate for one week? 
I think it's pretty fascinating to consider what could we take away? What could we subtract that might actually make us happier or might make us appreciate what we already had? More after this break. We love connecting with our listeners on social media, so we always need really good content to post. That's why I like Canva Pro. Canva Pro is a design platform with thousands of templates that are simple to customize, not to mention a great library of stock photos. It's so easy to make beautiful professional designs, and you can even add animation and audio. Design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash happiness to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash happiness. Canva.me slash happiness. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reports. Go to shopify.com slash science, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash science right now. Shopify.com slash science. We're always trying to figure out how to get more enjoyment out of life. And when we think about how to get happier, our natural inclination is to think about adding more of those pleasures to our lives. But I think it's pretty fascinating to consider what could we take away? What could we subtract that might actually make us happier or might make us appreciate what we already had? Elizabeth Dunn is a psychology professor at the University of British Columbia. She and her team wanted to see if abstinence could make the heart grow fonder. So we brought students, 55 students, into the lab, and we asked them to eat a little bit of chocolate. They measured how much the students enjoyed and savored their chocolate by having them answer questionnaires about their experiences eating it. For example, how much they mindfully paid attention to the taste and texture of the chocolate. And we also had a research assistant sort of surreptitiously observing them and watching how much they really seemed to savor and enjoy the chocolate. So were they like just throwing into their mouths and not seeming to pay any attention or like really kind of smiling, licking their lips, really like really pausing to appreciate this small pleasure. Liz's team told one group of students to completely refrain from eating any chocolate for the ensuing week. Meanwhile, we sent another group of students home with a big bag of chocolate and asked them to eat as much as they comfortably could over the following week. We gave them about two pounds worth of chocolate. And finally, there was a third group. We didn't give any chocolate-related instructions. Then they brought everybody back into the lab and asked them once again to eat some chocolate. And once again, we measured how much they savored the chocolate and how much they enjoyed it. The students who were asked to indulge in the two pounds of chocolate reported enjoying it less than they had at the start of the experiment. They were less likely to savor the chocolate and to really derive a little mood boost from it than they had been the first week. And, you know, this wasn't necessarily due to the abundant chocolate. It's not like they all came in, you know, bloated from excessive chocolate consumption. The students who weren't given any special chocolate-related instructions showed a pretty similar pattern. They tended to enjoy the chocolate less from one week to the next. This is just the sad reality of the human experience kind of encapsulated in a single study. That is, the more we repeat an experience, the less likely we are to enjoy it. People who were asked not to eat any chocolate between lab visits both savored and enjoyed it just as much the second week as they had the first. 
we saw that we could interrupt this process of declining enjoyment by having people give up chocolate during that intervening week. It's perhaps worth noting that their enjoyment and their savoring didn't increase, so it didn't. It's not like it went up from week one to week two, but they were just able to maintain that same level of enjoyment that they'd had with this first experience the second time by kind of taking a break from that positive stimulus in between. This is kind of like an initial proof of concept, an initial demonstration that hey, this might be an effective strategy, and at least it's perhaps worth giving it a try. And so, I'd really encourage people to think about using this strategy as a kind of exploratory tool for themselves to just find out whether maybe it might be effective for a particular pleasure in their life that they've perhaps begun to take for granted. Liz notes that these findings apply to stimuli that provide immediate pleasure, chocolate. Coffee, wine, so it makes sense that when Michael Pollan tried this practice earlier by abstaining from Twitter, he wasn't as eager to get back on as when he quit coffee. I would say that giving up Twitter might make somebody happier, but not because it enables them to give more of their attention or savor the experience of Twitter more, but rather because Twitter just might not be the happiest use of time. If I were to ask you to look up the word anger online, what images do you think you would see? You get a bunch of pictures. Not kidding, of men, mainly white guys, yelling at computers, breaking things, you know, wielding sledgehammers. That's what we have in our heads: this idea of this rage and destruction. But in fact, we're quietly, constantly managing our anger all the time. So much so that we don't have compassion for ourselves. On our next episode of the Science of Happiness, we explore how to harness anger into acts of self-compassion. I'm Dacher Keltner. Thanks for joining us on the Science of Happiness. We have instructions for the Give It Up practice online. Just visit ggia.berkeley.edu. What did playing look like for you as a child? And as an adult, how do you play now? Share with us by emailing happinesspod at berkeley.edu or using the hashtag happinesspod. The Science of Happiness is a co-production of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and PRX. Our senior producer is Shuka Kalantari. Sound design by Jenny Cataldo and Ben Manila of BMP Audio. Our associate producer is Haley Gray. Our executive producer is Jane Park. Our editor-in-chief is Jason Marsh. <laughs>